Well, I spent a lot of time Friday and Saturday thinking about this lesson. And I spent a little bit of time talking about the word disciple. Now, if you go back, obviously it is a word that is used quite a bit during Jesus' ministry by Jesus Himself. And then as you continue to look on throughout the New Testament, you then find the word disciple being used as a synonym for those who were Christians. And so, because the words are synonyms, you cannot be a Christian without being a disciple, nor could you be a disciple without being a Christian. But I think for us to get a little bit of an understanding about the idea of discipleship, we need to really go back and we need to start to put things in context. You go back and you begin to think about Jesus, and when Jesus actually said to go make disciples, Jesus was a Jew speaking to other Jews. Now, the term disciple had very specific meanings, and his Jewish listeners would have understood exactly what it was that he was trying to get across to them. Since that time, those words have been translated from the Greek into Latin and even into our, our own independent languages. And I think oftentimes many lose the idea of the concept of being a disciple simply due to the fact that we don't use the word the same way that they used to use it. We look at it through our 21st century glasses. And so we need to go back really and try to get an understanding. We need to get away from the idea that we have of a disciple and go back and to begin to look at what the Jews understood and what the scriptures say about being a disciple. And again, many people claim to be Christians but I'd have to wonder how many would claim to be disciples. What did Jesus mean by the term, and what did the Jews understand about it? Well, during Jesus' time period, you had many Jews who were looking for ways to please and be honoring to God. And so they needed some type of tutoring or mentoring. And so they would go to the teachers of the day, that would be the rabbis, and they were the ones who had interpreted God's Word during the times of Jesus. Matter of fact, there are tons of written books from rabbis. And so if you were looking to gain greater insight and understanding, what you would do is, is you would go to this rabbi and you would ask if you could be a disciple. Now, if he agreed to the would-be disciple's request and he allowed him to become a disciple, that disciple would agree to totally submit to the rabbi's authority in all areas of his life pertaining to the Scriptures. Part of this process, though, was not just following this rabbi around or spending time with him. It was spent by the, by the student, the disciple, asking his rabbi questions. And then in turn, as he spent time with the rabbi, the rabbi would watch what he was doing, and he would listen to his words and see his actions, and then he then would pose questions back. And so as you begin to think about the concept of a disciple, and you think about it in the context of the Jews, it wasn't really the, the problem with understanding the Scriptures. You have to remember, for the most part, they had memorized the majority, if not all, of their Hebrew Scriptures in preparation for their bar mitzvahs at age 13. They knew the Scriptures. The problem was they struggled with application. And so the issue wasn't really what God's Word said. Rather, what did it mean and how was it to be applied to my, to my life? And I think the same issue is today. You can find people who can both quote a passage but look at it and have totally different understandings. And so again, it wasn't 
not understanding or knowing the word, it was knowing how to apply it. Now, as you look at this contemporary, or as you look at their process of being a disciple as compared to our contemporary style today, uh, we have very formalized systems of education. That's not what took place when you were following around a rabbi. There wasn't a set curriculum or any type of an agenda. It took a number of years as you would follow them, and then a continual process of asking questions, having dialogue, discussing passages and, and what they mean, how to apply those. Part of this idea, though, of following this rabbi around as his disciple meant that you accepted 100% his teachings. And so if you were to say that you were a disciple, for example, of, of Gamaliel or a different rabbi, was in essence saying you agreed 100% with, with their doctrine and you were also a living according to it. Now let's put it into context as we talk about Jesus and Him using the term disciple. Jesus just wasn't some another rabbi. Jesus was our Messiah, our Lord and Savior. He was our Redeemer. Jesus talks a lot about the word disciple, and we're going to begin to look at Him. But Jesus in, in His discussions talks about there would be those who would follow after Him, and they would be faithful disciples. He doesn't use the word here. But then he also says that there would be some that would not be. Listen to Matthew 7, 21 through 22. Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Let me pause. That's the faithful disciple. That's the one who says, Yep, this is the rabbi I'm following. This is the rabbi who's... Uh, who's understanding of Scripture, I totally agree with, and that's what I abide by. Now he says there's a different party, though. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? What are they saying? We're also disciples. And in the very next verse, 23, he tells them to depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Again, Jesus starts off very early in his ministry here we have during the Sermon on the Mount where he says there's going to be some that claim to be disciples and they're faithful. There'll be others that claim to be disciples and they will not be. Now James gives us a little more understanding. And again, he doesn't use the word disciple here either. But James gives us some understanding. As, as I've already told you, the word disciple is a synonym for Christians. James does give us an understanding of this process in James 1.25. He says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's our inspired scriptures, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. What's James telling us? Jesus has already made it clear that there would be those that would be faithful disciples. He says there will be some that will not be. And James really discusses the same matter here, talking about how are we a faithful disciple as opposed to one who is not. And he makes it very clear here that this is a very continuous process that starts at the beginning of obeying the gospel and it must stay in play all the way until your last breath. And so this idea of discipleship, it starts whenever one becomes a Christian, but it never ends. Again, let's begin to break down what a disciple truly is. Remembering that a Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. Let's look at what Jesus says here. 
First of all, we're going to learn that discipleship is observable. I think we were talking about that this morning in our Bible study. When you are truly a disciple of Jesus, people will know. And again, yeah, you're going to be treated differently. But notice what Jesus says in John 13. He says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye love, you also love one another. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. As Christians, we are to have love for everybody. And I don't, inherent, I don't inherently have an issue with any group, nation, or uh, type of person. I, I, I struggle with certain people's beliefs, but we're going to deal with that no matter who it is that we're dealing with who's not a Christian. And no matter who it is and no matter what they do, as a disciple, I'm to emulate the love of Christ with the goal being to convert them from either being nothing or being something else into becoming a Christian. That's the disciple's goal. Jesus says, when you do this, they're going to know that you're my disciple. Notice what he says in John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, I'm not going to go back and spend time talking about Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus spends a great deal of time talking about letting your light shine. Now, again, I think that goes back to what we were discussing this morning. As disciples of Jesus, true disciples of Jesus, people are going to see the difference in, in our speech, in our etiquette, and how that we deal with people, certainly within our doctrinal system of belief, which is what gives us our worldview. The disciple should have a worldview, and our worldview is 100% based on the Scriptures. And again, we actually looked at this passage this morning in Bible study. Notice what he says in Luke 6.40. And we actually were looking at the version of Matthew, but here he says in Luke 6, 40, The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. This, in a nutshell, is the first century understanding of the relationship between the rabbi and his disciple. What he's trying to get us to understand is, is I'm not truly a disciple unless I'm emulating the rabbi, the one that I have said is the one I would follow, the one that I, I agree with his understanding and proclamation of Scripture. It's the agreement that we made when we obeyed the gospel. And it's not changed by culture. It's not changed by self-will. And we'll talk about that. It is an agreement that came into place when I believed that Jesus was the Messiah and I obeyed the gospel and decided to become a Christian, a disciple. It's not some type of a fad movement. I know those have occurred over the years. Again, as James gives us the idea, it is a process that starts and it will continue our entire life. And he describes it this way in Galatians 2.20. And tell me if this doesn't sound like somebody who, who's telling everyone he knows that he is a disciple. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Let me pause again. How? How does that happen? As the one who has said, this is the rabbi I'm going to follow, this is the one that I will emulate, you continue to see those teachings being emulated throughout his life. And he says, but Christ liveth in me. And the, light, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Discipleship is clearly observable to the world around us. It is seen that we're not like the world around us. It should be seen that we are trying to emulate our Lord and Savior. As the process of discipleship comes into, into play, really, there has to be a counting of the cost. And what I mean by that is, is an, it really should take place before, <laughs> it should take place before one ever becomes a Christian. But there has to be a time at which you count the cost. Let's go on over to Luke chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 27. Jesus says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him. We could go back and spend some time talking about the parable of the sower. There is the seed by the wayside. and We get the same understanding here that there needs to be a counting of the cost before one ever becomes a Christian. But that counting continues as one is a Christian. It's a well thought out decision prior to obeying the gospel and it needs to be a well thought out decision as we remain faithful to the gospel. Again, the idea is, is that as disciples of Christ, we fill ourselves with Christ. And that means a number of things, one of which means we will deny our wants and desires. Let's go back and look at Matthew 16. I want you to notice what he, he tells his disciples here. Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We live in a culture today that really seeks a number of things more than it seeks spiritual salvation. And I think if you read Jesus' words here and you just ponder on it, what is Jesus saying? He's really saying, what is the point? What is the end result? Again, notice Mark 8, 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now I'm going to go back and mention a Greek word here. The word is arneomai. It is the word there that we have translated in the phrase, the King James in the phrase there where it says to deny himself. And the word there says refuse to follow. That's what the word means. So here's the logical question. When you talk about denying, and in the original language it says to refuse to follow. Here's the question. Who do I refuse to follow? Well, the answer there was myself. This isn't easy to grasp probably for the world, but for us as Christians, I think we understand it. And here's what he's saying. Stop being independent in a number of areas of your life. And the reason is, is because if you continue to be independent, you're never going to be fulfilled, and that's because you will constantly have unmet desires. And it will be a constant disappointment because your desires will never stop. In essence, what he's telling us is, is we're going to be much like the prodigal son who thought independence was the perfect life 
because he wouldn't deny himself. He wouldn't quit following himself. If we want to be faithful, we have to submit ourselves wholly to God. And so, God knows what, what we need better than we do. I want you to notice over here in Galatians 5.22, God demands self-control, which is self-denial. And over in 2 Peter 1.6, we're actually told that we need to add temperance or self-control to our godly characteristics. But Paul says this to the Galatians in Galatians 5.22. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There's that word there, self-control. Against such there is no law. Have you guys ever wondered what Paul's talking about when he says, against such there is no law? I've thought a lot about that quite a bit as I've looked at that passage over the years. There is no law against those who are self-controlled. There is no law that will condemn against those who are faithful disciples of Christ. There is no law that, of God that will bring shame to one who is a true, faithful, again, disciple of Christ. So for those who have these characteristics of just uh, which one of those is temperance, there's no law that will condemn you. Why? Well, to be a faithful disciple of Christ and to have all of these characteristics means that I'm seen as pure, I'm seen as righteous, I'm seen as justified. There's no law that would condemn me for that. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Paul says, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate. Again, that word self-controlled. In all things. That goes back to that idea that we mentioned earlier of the word arneomai, which means refusing to follow yourself, right? Being self-controlled, a disciple who knows the Scriptures. He says he's temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible we have to be true disciples if we want to go to heaven, if we want this incorruptible crown. Now again, that goes back to that word that I was just talking about, or naomai, the idea of refusing to follow myself. And then we see self-denial as part of that, and we ask the question, well, why deny self? Why would I, why would I do that? How is that beneficial to me? Well, I think... I think for the person in Jesus' day, for the one who was a disciple, who was asking to follow this rabbi, I think he probably had a much better understanding than many today, and that's because the Old Testament deals with it quite a bit, as well does our New Testament. But let's go back to the Old Testament and again place ourselves in the one who is choosing to be a disciple of a rabbi who's willing to do what Jesus says here. Proverbs 14:12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That goes back to that word, arneom. Why would I deny myself? Why would I quit following myself, my own wants, my own desires? Well, the Proverbs writer tells me that sometimes things seem right to me, but they're not. Or sometimes things seem enjoyable, or they're preferred by me, but in essence, it's not the will of God. In Jeremiah 10, 23, we find this, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh 
to direct his steps. I would say the majority of us come into contact every day with people who think either they are good moral people or think that they are doing the will of God. And yet you begin to go back and you begin to look at what it is they believe, what it is they are doing, and you find out that they're directing their own steps. They're not disciples of Christ. and They're not doing what Christ taught them. Isaiah 55, 9 and 10, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's the true disciple of Christ that both knows and obeys the inspired thoughts which tell us how to live. We have to know them. We have to accept them. That's what a disciple does. That's what we do as part of counting the cost. Again, there are a lot of people, as I told you earlier, the word Christian and disciple are synonyms. There are a lot of people so far who are calling themselves Christians who, don't, who do not even meet the very first thing we're talking about. And I'm talking about in every religious group, including sitting within the churches of Christ. Now, we focused just a little bit already on counting the cost. Let's go to the other part of the verse. Let's talk about taking up, the, taking up our cross. Let's go over to Matthew 10, 38. Jesus says, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Let's begin to break this down and put a little bit into context. Jesus talking to Jews, and he's talking about taking up your cross. This would have painted a much vivid and different picture than what we have today in our mind. The cross was an instrument of death, and it had really been perfected by, by the Romans. Taking up our cross represented total sacrifice. I think it goes much deeper than that, and I'll touch on that here in a second. But as Jesus begins to talk about taking up your cross, inherently in, in that is the idea of sacrificial living. He's teaching that the true disciple is going to give up their whole life to God. It, it's a nonstop sacrifice. And what was his point? Taking up our cross. Well, we have to live as Jesus lived. And if we don't, we're not worthy of His sacrifice. Let's go back over to Mark. We already looked at this passage once, but let's look at it again. Mark 8, 34. And when He had called the people unto Him with His disciples also, He said unto them, Whosoever will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. I don't think they probably realized it at the time. I don't see how they could have. Later, looking back, after the death, the burial, and the resurrection, this would have meant something completely different to them than on the day that they heard it. Jesus lived the model perfect life. And then He tells those that they are to emulate Him. Peter records this for us, 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps." That's exactly what Jesus was saying when He was calling us to be disciples and to take up our cross. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, "...be ye followers of Me, even as I also am of Christ." I think that's the basis of the bulletin article, if you'll read it today. We have to allow ourselves as disciples to be transformed into the image of Christ. That was the idea of the disciple who was in essence following his rabbi and he was slowly being transformed into the teachings and the appearance of the rabbi that he was following. 
That's the agreement that we have with Christ when we became Christians. It's to be those disciples that would slowly transform into that image through His teachings. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Again, this goes back to when Jesus was talking about taking up our cross. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let me pause for just a second. It's our reasonable service. Remember when I said that counting the cost needs to take place before you ever become a Christian? They need to have an understanding that this sacrificial way that we live, it's all part of our reasonable service. I think a lot of people have been taught the gospel and never had to give the foresight or the thought into what is their reasonable service once they make this agreement to be a Christian or to be a disciple. And, and guys, to be honest with you, that's why so many don't stay the course. They've been taught a watered-down, cheap gospel, never fully understanding what it means to be a disciple. He goes on, And be not conformed to this world, this is part of our being a disciple, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In essence, very, very simply put there, we have the full understanding of what it is to be a disciple, what it's going to cost us. We'll break it down a little bit more here in a second. Paul says this in Romans 8, 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this passage going in and explaining it, but just to give you a real brief explanation for somebody who's watching this, they talk about the idea of predestination and God chose certain people to become a Christian and certain people to be lost. That's completely false. To be predestinated simply means uh, that God knows who will and who will not through their own free will obey the gospel. God's not picking certain people to be saved and certain people to be lost, but He certainly knows who will obey the gospel and who will be faithful. Okay, let me continue on. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. If we go back and think about that for just a second, that's what a disciple's doing, right? If they don't look like Jesus, and they don't talk like Jesus, and they don't act like Jesus, the question has to come up, are they really disciples of Jesus? The disciples of Jesus are conformed to His image. That makes me ask myself as a Christian, if I'm not looking like that image, am I truly a disciple? Or maybe I was, and I've slowly walked away from it. He goes on, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. We talk about taking up our cross, and then we go on and we learn it's, it's not something we do once and we're done with it. It's something we do daily. Luke 9, 23, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I thought about, I thought about this a lot, guys. The listeners of those in the crowd listening to Jesus, many of them who are already following Him as His disciples, would have realized to carry a cross is an extremely huge burden. So why would Jesus tell me to carry this heavy burden? But then over in Matthew eleven thirty, He tells me that His burden is light. Which is it? Is it contradictory? Well... I need to understand something that they understood, at least the way the original audience did. To the original hearers in the audience, they had a great understanding of what it meant to take up one's cross. They'd seen people carry their cross there to the site. 
They knew what the burden was. But here's the thing that they understood that I think many of us miss today. The person who was carrying their cross to their own death realized this was a one-way journey. There was no going back. And so as you begin to think about the context a little bit of what Jesus is saying here, now certainly sacrifice is involved in the idea of carrying your cross, but He was saying really don't be fooled into thinking you know what is most fulfilling for you. Again, that's why we had the, the word earlier where He talks about denying ourselves. Basically, He's saying, follow me and be with me as I want to be with you. And in this relationship, you're going to find life the way that I have set it out for you. It's a sacrificial one-way journey to be a disciple. There is no going back. There can be no going back and not think for a second that you'll make it to heaven. I think the first century audience greatly understood, yes, there is a burden on that, but Jesus' burden is light. It's not contradictory. It makes complete sense when you begin to think about it. So we have to take up our cross. But then he begins to speak about the disciple losing their life for Christ and then literally for the gospel. And the two go hand in hand. Jesus in Matthew 10, 39 says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now similarly over in Mark 8, 35, it says this, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. If somebody holds their life so dear that they just want to please themselves, remember we had the Greek word we were focusing on where we were told to deny ourselves. If a person holds their life so dear that they want to please themselves, Jesus says he's going to lose his life eternally. And that's because he's not going to do the will of God. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's not going to deny his own desires the desires of the world, which oftentimes will oppose the will of God. And we know as we begin to break this down, that's the complete opposite of what a disciple is supposed to do. Now Paul spends quite a bit of time describing those who would rather live for themselves than they would, would to live for God. And to be honest, I don't think it's any different today than it was when Paul writes it. I think when we look around at the culture around us, those who they want to live for themselves, they want to do what they want to do, they don't want to be confined to the Word of God, they don't want to be disciples of Christ, at least not true disciples. They may want cheap religion, but they don't want true discipleship. And Paul describes those types of people. And as I read this, again, I'm going to go over to Romans 1.28. Tell me if this doesn't sound like the world around us many of them claiming to be disciples of Christ. Paul says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, Inventor of, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. 
And I say, you know what, that, that looks like the world around us. That sounds like the world around us. I don't think we find anybody in the congregation that exhibits every one of those characteristics. But here's the sad part, guys. There's some of us in here that exhibit one or two of those. And yet we find that the disciple of Christ can't do any of those. Not when Christian means disciple and disciple means Christian. And we begin to lay out how a disciple is supposed to live. Guys, living for Christ, being a disciple, that's the only way we find eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What's he saying? They're going to be disciples of him. His death, burial, and resurrection. They will choose to be disciples. Why? Because He sacrificed Himself for them, and the least they can do is sacrifice their life for Him. That's becoming a disciple. Paul writes this in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I struggle with that a little bit, guys. I... I completely understand it, and I completely comprehend it. And I know that to die faithfully is a release from, from the pain, from the trial, from all the temptations and the struggles that we face in this life. And if I'm going to be honest, I don't, I don't really want to die. I'm not scared to die, but I don't want to die. But He's giving me this understanding that it's going to happen. And for the disciples, it doesn't have to be something that's scary. For those who are not disciples of Christ, yes, it's something to be fearful of. But for us, it's not. It's, it's gain. We're gaining something. It's a gaining of all that is love and all that is peace and is being in the presence of the Godhead to be in the presence of other faithful followers. So the question then is this for those maybe who are who are not disciples, or at least are not faithful disciples, the question then is this, is hell worth it? And I think we go back to Matthew 16, 26, where Jesus said, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? All the wealth, all the glory, all the pleasures, all the power of this earth are worthless to a dead person. If we should gain them all and lose our own soul, we have lost that which is most precious. And the only way to achieve that is to be a disciple. Let's talk about discipleship coming before everyone else. I think we touched on this just for a little bit this morning. Matthew 10, 34 through 37. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I think I find that verse more personal every day. I think most of us have probably seen that in some way carry out in families. What's he saying? A disciple is to love the Godhead more than anything and more than anyone. And you may say, why do you say the Godhead? 
The entire Godhead had a portion to play in man's salvation. We've talked about the distinct members of the Godhead, one not being any greater than the other, all being, being equal there. But we are to love the Godhead more than anything, more than anybody. God has always wanted faithful disciples, faithful followers, whether it was under uh, the patriarchs or whether it was under the law of Judaism or even today as Christians. Listen to Matthew 19, 29 and 30. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I think to many people that sounds like double talk. It doesn't seem to make sense to them. As a disciple, as followers of Christ, I think at many times in our life it does not seem like this world is fair. And to be honest, it's not, especially for a faithful disciple. But here's the thing, there will be a reckoning at the judgment. And many who rejected Jesus will be rejected by Jesus. However, those true disciples, they will not. They will be first. And so as a disciple, we have to seek God above all else. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If we're all going to be honest, and I'm trying to be, we all should admit that there are times when we do not do our best. When we fall short, we sin, we make mistakes. But as a disciple, when I do that, I have to realize, okay, I've messed up, it's time to get back. And to get back to seeking the kingdom of God, to seek His righteousness. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What, I'm, what he's saying there is, is, are you prepared at the drop of a hat to explain to somebody why you are a disciple of Christ? And I'm not, I'm not saying just somebody who claims to be a Christian. Why are you a true disciple of Christ? Why do you do the things that you do? Why are you so extreme as far as the world is concerned, or even as even considered extreme as to what many of those who would call themselves Christians would say? I've had people tell me my views are extreme. No, a disciple, a discipleship is extreme. Go back to the very beginning. It's me saying I'm choosing to follow this rabbi, accept his teaching, and totally allow those teachings to come in as I emulate them, be played out in my life. Guys, that's extreme. That's very extreme. And so we'll end with the last point. Discipleship requires forsaking all. Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You may say, well, what's he talking about? What is he talking about forsaking? It varies. What's your personal problem? What's the area that you struggle with? Is it sin? Is it some type of pleasure, sinful pleasure? Is it, do you have a problem with wealth, abundance of wealth? What do you have the problem with? Is it humility? Is it pride? The list goes on and on. It's a very personal question. What is your 
problem. You guys ever had somebody say, what's your problem? What is your problem? If you want to be a disciple, you need to figure that out. Guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to list them right now. I know what my problems are. I'm not always the best at fixing them all, but I know what they are. Let's consider the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt help Thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And then he says this, And come follow me. Let me pause for a second before I get the last verse. The rabbi asking him to become the, the, the disciple. Sometimes it's the disciple asking the rabbi. Here's the rabbi asking him to come be a disciple. And he says, this is all you got to do. Verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It may not be money for you. It may be pride. It may be humility. It may be any number of issues. For him, it was money. I would boil it down this way, guys. You know what he was looking for? Same thing people are looking for today, cheap religion. Wanting to say you're a disciple, but not really wanting to be a true disciple, not willing to count the cost, not willing to submit to the authority of the rabbi. The true disciple counts all things as loss. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Let me pause for a second. You may say, well, what is that? What did Paul give up? Come on. Look, I mean, he became an apostle. That's a big deal. Paul the masters of the day, the master's degree of the day, the, the elect as far as being taught, taught at the feet of Gamaliel, an up-and-comer within the Pharisees. You're talking prestige, you're talking wealth, you're talking money. He was somebody. And he says, I gave all of that up. I counted it loss for Christ. And people say, well, he became an apostle. Yep, he was persecuted, he was chased. It was a nonstop, nonstop problem for Paul, right? I gave all that up to become a disciple. I counted it all for loss. It wasn't worth anything to me. Verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. What would you give up to become a, type, a, a true disciple? Would you give up your jobs? Would you give up money? Would you give up your house? Take it on a more personal level, as Jesus said, would you give up a marriage? Would you give up children? What would you give up? A lot of people would not be willing to give up any of that. Then again, a lot of people aren't willing to be a true disciple of Jesus. You think it's extreme? Yeah, it is. It's very extreme. 
because being a disciple of Jesus is nothing like what we see in the world today. There is a common kind of Christianity that many of us see today, and many which are relying on to get them to heaven. And as I sat and thought about it this week, it is a cheap Christianity that offends nobody, and it requires no sacrifice, and it requires no change in life, and it requires no change in motives, and it requires no change in attitude, and it requires no, no persecution or offending of anybody. And what it is is a religion that is worth nothing. Being a disciple of Jesus is going to cost you your whole life. And it starts when you obey the gospel, and it better take place until you die. Because, guys, Jesus doesn't ask for very much. He asks for everything. And if you want to be a disciple of Christ, that's what you're going to have to do. In return, though, He promises the greatest blessings you can ever imagine. And so as I draw this to a close, that's my question for you. Are you a disciple of Christ? And if you're not, that's something you need to consider right now. If you are, ask yourself, are you a faithful disciple of Christ? Don't look at yourself as just a Christian. Again, the word Christian and disciple are synonyms. They're synonymous with one another. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. Go back and look up all of the words where that word disciple is used. There's an awful lot required of us. And inherent in the idea of being a disciple is learning. Heavy focus on understanding what it is that we need to know. That's the Word of God. You can't be a disciple without knowing the Word of God. If you're watching this and you are not a disciple of Christ, what I mean is you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to. Very simple process. We need to talk about who Jesus was and why He came so that you can have faith in the very fact that He was our Lord and Savior just as was prophesied, Hebrews 11, 6. And an understanding of sin so that you can repent, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Confess Him as Lord and Savior, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then be immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. If you're here and you are a Christian, if there's a way that we can assist you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.